This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekelah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. Saul then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your Lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. 
The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will, do, you will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. This is the word of the Lord. And this is, in fact, a fateful meeting late in this book of 1 Samuel because it's the last encounter between Saul and David. The last time they will speak to each other before the events leading up to Saul's death in the last few chapters of this book. And chapters 24 and 25 and 26 form, as it were, three panels. You know, like a triptych, the three panels of paintings. Uh, The first one being David in the cave cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. That's chapter 24. Very similar in many ways to this chapter. And then in between you have chapter 25. It's a picture of David enraged and full of vengeance on the road through the ravine to slaughter Nabal, the fool, and his household. And he's interrupted by the beautiful, wise woman Abigail who convinces David to show restraint and not to kill her husband. And now here we have chapter 26, the third painting in this series, David holding the spear aloft, calling out to Saul and his army across the valley. And despite many similarities between this event and David cutting off the corner of Saul's robe in the cave, there is a difference, there is a development, because that encounter with Nabal comes in between. A story in which David becomes aware of the potential evil within his own heart, his own impulsive rage, his desire to go and slaughter a man's household. But also in that encounter with Abigail, David comes to a deeper realization of God's promises towards him, a deeper certainty in God's commitment to bring him to the throne. It's a picture really of all of our maturity and faith and awareness of the horrible potential of our own sin, but also a deepening awareness of what God has for us. Saul had promised in chapter 24 that he would give up hunting David, and Saul really seemed to be genuinely remorseful. And I believe that Saul was sincere in his own ways. They weren't false tears. He really did feel a deep sense of shame at his injustice in returning evil for David's good. He had a sense of the horror of his own sin and the evil within his own heart. But for Saul, that sense of remorse was like a passing thunderstorm that had momentarily dampened the rocks but had not soaked deep into the soil of his own heart. You know, Saul may have had remorse. He may have had a horrified recognition of his own sin. He had a sense of deep self-loathing and self-hatred, and he vowed great promises that day. But Saul, for all his sincerity... In the moment, Saul never really changed deep down. There is a repentance, but it's a short-term repentance. 
And at the first opportunity to go and hunt David again, it's like Saul can't control his own murderous impulses. And he leaps off his throne and he follows the Ziphites into the wilderness to find Saul. And maybe you could recognize this own kind of repentance in your own life. That sense of condemnation for your own sin, an awareness of the evil within your own heart, vowing and promising with tears before God that this time, this time you will change. And it's not hypocritical, it's not insincere, it's just, it's just very shallow. And it's a kind of repentance and a kind of remorse that I think the devil himself is invested in keeping that cycle going within our hearts. He has no problem with overwhelming us with bad feelings. He loves to tempt us to sin and then crush us with condemnation because it keeps us trapped in that cycle of sin and shame. And you know, for all his repentance, for all his remorse, for all his honesty about his own sin, for all his promises, the thing about Saul is that he never takes that to God. David is also a man with a capacity for evil and with his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, David is capable and actually commits horrible crimes. But the difference between David and Saul is that David goes to God. He writes Psalm 51, against you, against you only have I sinned. And he fasts and he prays and he seeks God and he begs for the Holy Spirit not to be taken away from him. Psalm 51, for all of Saul's remorse, is not something he would ever have written. So here again, the same story repeats itself. It's a rerun of previous chapters. Saul once again is on the hunt for David to destroy him. This threat that he fears is going to take over his throne. You know, in chapter 24, David had been caught by surprise. Him and his men had been hiding in the cave. And then Saul's shadow had darkened the entrance as Saul came in to relieve himself. But this time, David is not going to be caught unawares. He's not going to be passively waiting for Saul to come on top of him. David, filled with a new assurance of God's promises, it turns out, is the one who hunts Saul down. He sends out scouts to verify Saul's mission. And then David himself goes to the outcropping overlooking the camp to observe the security arrangements. He sees Saul placed in the center, surrounded by his 3,000 picked troops, the special forces. Saul at the very center of the camp. You know, if you know your Old Testament well at all, and you think back to the children of Israel traveling through the wilderness, what was meant to be at the center of the camp as they were on the move was the tabernacle of God. But now instead of the presence of God at the center, they have a fear-driven, decayed, God-forsaken king in the center. 3,000 men, no sentries guarding the camp, and Abner, Saul's commander, surely could not have imagined that anyone would have been mad enough to try to infiltrate this camp of warriors. David calls for volunteers, and the man who puts his hand up is, as it turns out, his own nephew, 
Abishai. Abishai is the son of David's sister, Zariah. And David, as you recall, is the very youngest of his brothers. He's the baby in the family. So I suspect that these were children of an older sister, very close to David himself in age. We'll find out through the story of First and Second Samuel that there's three brothers. There's Abishai, there's Joab, and there's Azahel. These are heroic men. These are men of valor, men without fear, men who have a deep loyalty to David. Later on in Second um, Samuel, or perhaps it's First Chronicles, it documents late in David's reign the mighty men who surrounded him, the true men of valor. And above all the mighty men were three heroic men. And the chief of those three men was this man, Abishai. A man, incidentally, who was noted for single-handedly killing 300 men with his spear. A man who's very handy with that weapon. And now he's volunteering for what he assumes is a dangerous two-man hit squad to take Saul out once for all. And Abishai is a man who lives for these kind of dangerous missions, and he eagerly volunteers to go with David. As the sun sets across the mountaintops, David and Abishai slip like shadows between the rocks and approach the enemy camp. And in darkness, they crawl through between the sleeping warriors to the king slumbering, at the center of the circle. Saul is sound asleep in the middle of a dozing army. And you can imagine David and Abishai reaching Saul, crouching over him, and then the moon shines through the clouds that move away onto Saul's face, a face that is usually oppressed and troubled, but here is Saul, his face is at peace in sleep. Saul is curled up in his sleeping bag, utterly oblivious to the danger hovering over him, completely vulnerable to what these men choose to do. And it must have felt uncanny for David and Abishai, this deep slumber all these warriors are in. Because as they crawl past, they can't help making small noises and bumping into people. No one stirs. No one mumbles in their sleep. No one rolls over. Everyone is deep, deep in dreamland. And the narrator tells us this uncanny sleep, in fact, is a sleep from the Lord. He's put these 3,000 special forces into deep unconsciousness. And as they crouch over Saul, Abishai urges upon him that he take advantage of this opportunity, which is clearly from God. Something creepy is happening, David. I can feel my hairs are standing straight up on my arms. God has given your enemy into your hands This day. And I know back in the cave, you were too squeamish to do the job yourself, but I'm not so squeamish as you are. I'm not bothered with your own tender conscience. So please allow me to finish Saul off. And that way, your own hands will remain 
bloodless and clean. You'll be technically guiltless because you weren't the one to assassinate Saul yourself. I will finish him off for you. And he could have gone on to urge, you know, we gave Saul his chance. You acted with great honor in the cave and he swore not to pursue you. And here he is again. Saul has had his chance. And now it would be beautiful, poetic justice from God were we to finish him off now. Because there beside Saul, driven into the ground, is his own spear. The king's spear, its point engraved with a very recognizable pattern. The spear that Saul always had at his side, sitting on the top of the hill in Gibeah under the tree. The very spear that Saul had twice flung at the head of David and missed. And there's Abishai saying, I don't need to strike twice. I will not miss. I will drive the spear right through Saul's chest and pin him to the ground with barely a gurgle. And all we need, David, is for me to move my arm 20, 30 centimeters in one strong movement and all our problems will be solved. And what poetic justice it will be for Saul to be executed with the, uh, with the very weapon with which he tried to murder David. Abishai is a loyal man. He's a fiercely loyal man to his clansman, David. Loyal in his own way. Because Abishai and his brothers, well, they're rough, violent men who actually cause a lot of problems for David as the story goes on. They do love David. They admire David. But they don't have the same kind of heart as David does. They're not the kind of men who play the harp and hunger and long for the presence of God. In fact, they seem to kind of humor David's God talk because they're men who know how the system really works. They're worldly men and they're brutally realistic. They know how the sausage gets made. In fact, they enjoy making the sausage. Yeah? And they're the kind of men who know that no matter how innocent David might be, and he's quite the choir boy in their minds, there's always dirty work that needs to be done. And the presidential candidate can be on camera kissing the babies and being charismatic and talking with people in diners, but he always needs the political operatives in the background doing the dirty work, removing the threats, clearing the path so that David can come to power. And Abishai and his brothers Joab and Azahel are men who are more than willing to do David's dirty work. In fact, the lesson that they seem to learn from this chapter is it's better not even to ask David. Don't even have David around. Just do it for him and ask for his forgiveness afterwards. And in fact, later on in, in 2 Samuel, Abishai, along with his brother Joab, will lure Abner, Saul's commander, to his death, and they'll murder this man in cold blood, both to avenge their brother Azahel and also to clear the path for David to take the throne. And David will complain about these men, like, ah, oh, these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. I can't handle these guys. I can't prevent them from this violence that they're always seeking to execute, supposedly, for me. You know, violence always seems more efficient than restraint. 20, 30 centimeters, boom, Saul's dead, 
and David can go sit on the throne. Violence always seems far more efficient and effective than love and mercy and justice. And that's why human beings again and again are tempted toward violent solutions. And just look at our neighbors to the south of us, Armenia and Azerbaijan, yet again, tanks and helicopters and people suffering and dying over a worthless piece of mountainside. Is this little war going to solve any problems? Absolutely not. And yet, again and again, we get suckered into this cycle of violence. And you know whose side Satan's on in that conflict, don't you? He's not on Armenia's side. He's not on Azerbaijan's side. He's against both of these peoples. He's always on the side of violence and death and vengeance and hatred. And he loves stirring up this kind of chaos. And here in the voice of Abishai, Satan is offering himself as the campaign manager for the kingdom of God. He's offering his own brutally effective methods to David as he offers them to us. And David will not be tempted. Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David has learned something with his encounter with Nabal in the previous chapter because he says, as the Lord lives, one way or the other, God is going to finish him off. God will take care of him. It's not our business to do this. As surely as the Lord lives, verse 10, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he'll go into battle and perish. It's God's responsibility to take care of Saul, not mine. And don't tempt me to do God's dirty work for him. David doesn't know how this is going to happen. In the end, as it turns out, Saul actually will die at the point of his own weapon. David doesn't know that. He's simply trusting that one way or the other, God will take care of Saul and take care of David. What David does know is this. God is calling me to be obedient right now in this situation. It's not my responsibility to do God's job for him. It's not my responsibility to make God's promises come to pass. My responsibility right now, in the middle of the night, crouched over this sleeping king, is to withhold my hand and protect his life. That's what God wants from me. So we're not going to kill Saul. We're not going to drive this spear through his ribcage. We're going to take the spear, and we're going to take the water jug, and we're going to leave. And there's a symbolism in what David takes because to be left in the wilderness without your weapon and without water is death. And David, by taking these things away, is saying to Saul, I'm holding your life in my hands. So David and Abishai take these two items. They cross the valley. They go to a very safe distance. And from the other side of the the mountain on the other side of the valley, they call out loudly to the sleeping army. And David addresses not Saul, first of all, but Abner, the commander of Saul's army. And he challenges Abner with gross negligence in failing to put out sentries and protect his master. In fact, Abner, in David's mind, deserves to die for not protecting the Lord's anointed. Now, Abner is Saul's uncle. We'll 
find out later, piecing together the genealogies. He's older than Saul. And Abner has been with Saul for a long time. In fact, Abner had been there on the battlefield many years ago when David had brought down the giant Goliath and cut off his head. And Abner was the man who had taken David by the arm and brought him into Saul's tent to be rewarded. Abner had been the commander of Saul's army for many years, and he's the one who must have overseen David as David went out on mission after mission against the enemies of Israel and come back with incredible success. And we know that Abner had been at the room, seated at the table beside Saul, when Saul had cursed his son Jonathan for supporting David and flung his spear at his own son's head. Abner knows David, and he knows David very well. He knows who David truly is. He knows David's real value and David's real character. And he'd been around Saul long enough to know that his own nephew has got a few screws loose in his head. He knows what drives his nephew. It's not some righteous indignation against Saul. It's this murderous craving to destroy an innocent man. Abner knows all this, and yet he's not with David. He's with Saul. Abner is a man who's taking the path of least resistance. All David's jobless malcontents have come to him in the wilderness, but Abner is a man with a lot to lose. He's an older man. He's risen to the top of his profession. He's living a comfortable life. And so even though he might not agree with Saul, he rolls his eyes and goes along on these crazy expeditions to the wilderness. And it seems like David is saying to Abner, choose this day whom you will serve. If you're going to cast your lot in with Saul, fine, cast your lot in with Saul, but then serve him well. Don't go along with him and fail to protect him. In fact, I, the fugitive David, have taken more care for Saul's life than the commander of his army. You know, I feel like there are a lot of people like Abner in this world, people who recognize the claims of Christ, who recognize his value, but they have too much invested in this world to walk away and go into the wilderness and follow God's king. Like the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he was unwilling to part with his possessions. And he failed to recognize that he was serving a doomed kingdom and a deluded king. And Abner and so many of us are unwilling to pay the cost of allegiance to God's true anointed. Well, Saul interrupts this conversation between David and Abner and in a choked voice calls out, Is that your voice, David, my son? And David responds to him with words of ruthless rebuke. Why are you chasing me? Why are you hunting me down, an innocent man? Why are you cutting me off from Israel and the worship of Israel's God? You're treating me like a partridge, a bird that you're beating from bush to bush until it falls exhausted and can be finished off with a stick. Why are you hunting me down so ruthlessly? And Saul again responds with remorse. He's sorrowful. He feels guilty. I've sinned. Come back, David, my son. I will not try to harm you again. I've acted the fool. It's the old remorse, the old shame, the old promises. And David 
is in no mood to trust Saul. He's not willing to come back with Saul. It's their last encounter. There's no hope of reconciliation with this kind of man. You can have your spear back, send someone to collect it, but you cannot have me back. And then David stakes his claim and declares who he is. Look, he says, I'm not, I'm not trying to win Saul over. Saul's not the person I'm trying to please. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing before the face of God. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. So whatever Saul does, whatever Abner does, whatever Abishai wants to do, David is determined to walk in righteousness and faithfulness before God and before other people. And I think that might be the lesson of this chapter for us today. That what God wants from us is not to control our circumstances, but to cultivate our character before him. It's not in our hands to command success. That's God's job. But what we always have the ability to do is choose how we're going to walk before the presence of God in this very moment. Righteousness and faithfulness. Justice and loyalty are the values of God's kingdom. And those are not qualities that Saul deeply cares about. They're not qualities that Abner deeply cares about. They're not even qualities that Abishai, David's nephew and follower, deeply cares about. But righteousness and faithfulness is what David is all about. And he's determined, I will trust and I will obey, knowing that one way or the other, God will honor those who honor him. You know, the weapons of the flesh always seem quicker and more efficient than the weapons of the spirit. The weapons of the spirit, the imitation of Christ, in this world are slow, clumsy, and seemingly irrelevant. Especially Jesus' call to nonviolence, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse you. Nothing could be more ridiculously non-applicable to the situation of the world than the path that Jesus, our King, calls us to. But it turns out that God is far more interested in justice and mercy and love and righteousness than we are. And wherever that exists, wherever those things exist, the kingdom of God is already manifesting itself. It's breaking into this world. 
back in Canada, our, um, we signed up our kids for Charlottetown Christian School. And we went into the principal's office and, and got to meet this man. And he told us that he'd just taken this job coming from a large private school in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And he'd been very successful and he'd um, given that school basically record test scores. This was a man driven to excellence. And now he'd come to this small Christian school in Prince Edward Island and he was trying to do the same thing again. But there was a family who wanted to join the school, and one of their children was um, had quite a severe mental mental challenge. And the principal felt this hesitation on his heart about allowing this child into the school because he knew that if the school opened their arms and welcomed someone like this, their test scores were going to go down. It was going to affect the school. He would not be able to meet the targets that he was setting for himself. But he felt convicted by the Spirit that that was not the way of the kingdom of God. He was thinking in a worldly mindset. Not that excellence is not important, but the excellence that God is looking for is not identical to that which the world measures and rewards. And he realized to manifest the kingdom in this situation meant welcoming in the weak, loving the weak, uh, as this world calls them, and making it a place of love and the welcome of Jesus. That is the way of the kingdom that we are all called to follow Jesus in exemplifying. And really, Jesus is the one who models what David, in his own limited way, does in this chapter. Jesus is the one who tells his disciples, put away your swords, I'm going to go alone into the enemy camp. And Jesus acts in a heroic way that men like Abishai would never understand. Because Jesus does not stand threateningly over those who are helpless. Jesus himself becomes bound and helpless and puts himself in the power of his enemies. And they stand threateningly over him. And there Jesus is. At any moment, he could have summoned legions of angels to protect and avenge him. But instead, he surrenders himself to the violence of others and prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he allows himself to be pierced by nails and by spear, and he dies for us. And the cross of Jesus is the supreme manifestation of kingly values. Utter foolishness to the world, but it's the very wisdom of God. And then Jesus emerges, shouting triumphantly on the other side of the valley of death, rewarded by God for his faithfulness and his righteousness. You know, we'd love to identify ourselves with David in this story, but we're a lot more like Saul, I think, in his superficial repentance. We're a lot more like Abner in his unwillingness to pay the cost to follow God's true king. A lot more like Abishai in his willingness to use fleshly weapons for God's purposes. But this King Jesus dies nonetheless to forgive us and to renew us by his Holy Spirit and to bring us into his kingdom. 
you know, when we read these stories in First Samuel, we have to recognize none of us are God's anointed. So we can't just take David's story and apply it immediately to our own lives. But because we belong to Jesus, God's anointed, we can see our future already in Jesus seated at the right hand of God. In him, we're promised this kingdom. And Jesus promises that he's going to return and he's going to raise us all out of our graves to reign with him in the new creation. And that is something that is a gift that falls from above. None of us can bring about this supernatural kingdom with the weapons of the flesh. It's not just wrong, it's impossible. It doesn't work that way. Because we can't achieve the kingdom, we can only receive it as a gift from God. And you know, in this world, righteousness, faithfulness sound hopelessly naive hopelessly idealistic, old-fashioned and irrelevant to the way things really work in this world. But there's another kingdom that has broken into this one, and that is the kingdom of the risen Jesus. The other kingdom and its king are doomed. They're going to fall. But in this new kingdom of the risen Jesus What matters is righteousness and faithfulness. Those are the values of the future kingdom that have now broken into this world. And so here we are assured of our faith, of our future in the risen Jesus. And we're invited by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live out the values of this future kingdom even now. Fear not, little flock, Jesus says. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And even now in the wilderness, we live out the values of that kingdom as an expression of our trust in Jesus. Let's respond now in prayer and ask God for the supernatural power to live out this life of cruciform weakness. Heavenly Father, we open ourselves before you and we confess to you how little these things characterize our own lives. And yet we are the ones for whom you have come and suffered and died. Lord, help us to do the hard work of obeying you in the difficult, confusing situations of our lives. Help us to act in a way that demonstrates that our eyes are only on you and the fear of the Lord alone is what motivates us. Help us to be men and women and children of integrity because we trust that we are receiving this kingdom from you as your gift. And now, Lord, as we rise to worship, assure our hearts that we belong to Christ, that he's died for us, and that our future is utterly secure in him. In his precious name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF.com hyphen georgia dot org thanks for listening